Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. And it's also, uh, you probably know it's 7.40 in the morning here. This might be the earliest podcast I've ever done. Thanks for listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host. This is season six. Don't forget you can go back through the whole catalog and find all five seasons of 7 Million Bikes. Make sure you subscribe and turn on the notifications. Follow 7 Million Bikes on Facebook. Go on there and give it a like. We're also on Instagram. If you do enjoy this content, then please go on the link in the notes for patreon.com and you can become a member of a Vietnam podcast and you get some cool benefits like free tickets. You'll get early bonus content as well. If you just want to buy me a coffee, there's also a link in the show notes. You can send me a coffee as well. So thank you very much to the previous people that sent me coffees. They were very much enjoyed. So very, very much appreciated. Season six is sponsored by our good friends over at Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. If you are in Saigon, then make sure you go check them out. Tell them that 7 Million Bikes sent you. They got two locations now, one in D2 and one in District 1. If you've seen the show Riverdale on Netflix, you'll know exactly what Eddie's is like. It's a slice of home comfort, no matter where you're from in the world. Make sure you check out Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. So enjoy 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Welcome to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil Mackay and I'm your host as always. Today we've got a little bit of a different podcast. We're recording on Zoom, so hopefully the audio quality is still as good as what you're used to, but it might be a little bit different. 
Now, my guest today, she is on a mission to transform the coffee industry through diversity, inclusion, and transparency. And her company has been featured recently in the Wall Street Journal, Vice, New York Magazine, New York Times, Forbes, Fortune, and was one of the 2019 Star Chefs Rising Stars. Now, she is the founder and CEO of Win Coffee Supply, which is America's first specialty Vietnamese coffee importer and roaster and has recently been on the Drew Barrymore TV show, which I'm excited to ask her about Drew Barrymore. And she's been on several other podcasts and Zoom panels talking about Win Coffee Supply, but also her activism and support of the Asian and Pacific Islander communities, especially in the light of the recent violence towards this community uh, in America. So I'm excited to introduce my guest today is Sarah Nguyen. Hi, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I've been very excited to talk to you since I saw that you did uh, an AMA, which is Ask Me Anything for anyone who's not in the know on Reddit. How did that go? It was amazing. I'm so actually I'm so happy that you were able to find it because the goal of doing AMAs is to find more community um, with people all across the internet and the world. So that's so cool. Well, I'm always on the lookout for interesting um, people to interview that are connected to Vietnam. So whether that's someone who's Vietnamese American or Vietnamese German, Swiss, we've had VQs from all over the world and within Vietnam on the show. So as soon as I saw that and I read that, I was like, oh, and I, I reached out right away. And then I've been chatting to Alex, your communications yeah. guy uh, yeah. ever since. Which did he tell you about our crazy connection? No, he didn't. Tell me. So I, in, I sent... Um, to you and him, a couple of episodes from previous shows to check out, thought you might be interested in. And one of them that I sent is from a girl called Lamin Tam, mm-hmm. who's a Houston-based Vietnamese-American, but she lived here in Saigon for a while and started a, a, a closed-door restaurant called Saigonista. Anyway, super interesting episode. I sent that to Alex, and he replied back, I just had dinner with her last week. That's amazing. What a small, small world, eh? Yeah, what a small world. Now, so one of the things uh, we've talked about on this season was the pronunciation of names and the meaning of names. And and the common question I always get is, how do I say your name? And most people get it wrong. I've had people that have known me for years and still say my name wrong. Now, I listened to one of your many videos. You did a TED Talk, which was fascinating. Um, And... It was like nails on a chalkboard when I listened to it because the first thing you said was New Win Coffee Supply. Yeah. What is the name of your coffee company and your last name? So my last name in Vietnamese with the diacritics is Huyen. And however, in English, the English language does not have diacritics. So the sounds that exist in Vietnamese just literally don't exist in English. So the anglicized versions of my last name there are many, many versions, and some people would say it's Win. Some people would say it's Nguyen. Some people would say it's Nguyen. My parents would say Nguyen, right? Um, and so it's interesting because when I first started the company, and the time when you saw this TED Talk, which is like at the very beginning days of the company, I entered the market saying Nguyen Coffee Supply because I didn't know if people who are non-Vietnamese could handle win or ruin so i try in my mind i was trying to make it as anglicized as possible but what's funny neil is that over time non-vietnamese americans would come up to me and say 
wait a minute, isn't it when, not new yet? Isn't it when? Like, and so that was, it's just a fascinating, um, I guess, like journey of how, of the Vietnamese American experience in America, really. And this is a larger conversation about language, linguistics, and diacritics. So now I say when more commonly, because I feel like that's the commonly accepted anglicized version of mainstream America. However, my last name in Vietnamese is still Nguyen. And I make fun, but I can't, I've been here five years and I still can't say it properly. I, I try, but because the NG is like a you got to get it like that. And then it's, it's like sing, right? Like the best way it was explained to me is think of sing, but take the sound at the end and put it at the beginning. For someone from Scotland, that's almost impossible to do. So um, I'm probably still saying it wrong. And it's good to know that that was an early TED talk. But yeah, when I did hear that, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. So one of the things that's, that I've learned about Vietnamese, the language, is that the NG is in the back of your throat, right? So I think when you think about where the sound comes from, it helps a lot. So the NG Vietnamese is in the back of your throat. So you should feel it back there like Nguyen, whereas the N in English is on the tip of your tongue, right? Like Nancy, right? So it's total opposites, really, which is why um, when people always ask me, how do you say your last name in English? You literally can't because they're just like just different worlds, right? Um, but yeah, so just aim for the back of your throat, Neil, and just go, yeah. What also made me laugh is last season we had a guest on who was, um, he, well, he described himself as a third culture kid, which was really interesting because he had such a mixed background. Vietnamese brought up in the UK or Vietnamese parents brought up in the UK. And he told me on the show, he didn't pronounce his own last name correctly until he was like 26. Which, and his last name was, of course, Nguyen. And so in the UK, he would pronounce it Nguyen up until then eventually he was 26. And I said to him, did your parents never correct you? Like He said, well, no, I was brought up saying it like this. And so now he lives over here and similar experience. Then you have to start pronouncing it correctly. Literally grew up saying Nguyen as well. And so I grew up saying Nguyen throughout like, you know, the 80s and 90s and even 2000s. Um, and it's interesting how like, even with my own journey as a Vietnamese American, I've evolved with Nguyen, Nguyen, and Win, right? So I think it's all a story of like, like the diaspora in different social cultural contexts. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I can relate in a way, but probably not really. But my last name is Mackay, but it can be called McKay, Mackey, McKee. And you can get any different types of pronunciations. So uh, I'm very used to it as well. I get it every day. And especially like with my first name as well. So I often get, you know, you could be waiting for your name to be called out. It'll be Niall Mackey. And I'm like, oh, that's me, Neil Mackay. Yeah, totally different. So where are your parents from in Vietnam? My dad is from Hanoi in the north. And my mom is originally from Wang Ai. Um, that's a hometown, it's like which is more central. However, most of like the family on my mom's side is now in Nha Trang. Nice. Have you been there? Yeah, I grew up um, visiting. So most of my family relatives are still in Vietnam. My parents are like one of eight siblings each. And so they were the only ones to escape the country. So I grew up with a really small family in the United States, like literally just my parents and my siblings. 
And so my whole extended family, my aunts, my uncles, all my cousins are still in Vietnam. So I was really fortunate as a young person to be able to go back and visit often. Um, and then as I got older as an adult, I was able to kind of go back on my own. Mm. Now, I ask this question to nearly every guest that is not, uh, that doesn't, that wasn't born in Vietnam and lived here the whole life. Do you speak Vietnamese? I do speak Vietnamese. It's, it's, I speak and read and write in Vietnamese, which is which helps me a lot in doing my current business. That's good. Yeah, because often the, some of our guests we've had on uh, that I just interviewed was a uh, he didn't learn Viet, he, his parents were Vietnamese and Laotian, but he didn't learn Vietnamese until he moved here at like thirty years old, which was obviously a big challenge to learn Vietnamese at that age. But he's he's almost fluent now. Yeah. It's a, I, I talk about this often and it's embarrassing. I've been here for five years now and I, I'm like most expats that live here, I don't speak Vietnamese. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as one of my uh, comedian friends does a joke about this recently, he's like, I think more expats would speak Vietnamese if it wasn't so difficult. <laughs> well, it's like Vietnamese, it's, it's a diacritics, right? It's a tonal language. There are tones and sounds that just simply don't exist in other languages. So for that reason, and it's also like, you know, you, because of the tones and the, and the tones and like the different um, accents, you know, your, your tongue is the muscle, right? There are muscles in your tongue. And so you have to have like flexed or trained your tongue to kind of like flex or speak in these different tones and accents. And so if you literally like never worked that muscle, it's kind of like difficult to build up. Not impossible, but yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a bit more challenging. I did do some Vietnamese lessons when I first came here. And I remember after an hour of lessons, like my jaw was in pain, my throat was in pain. And I just saw a friend post yesterday that he's restarted Vietnamese lessons. And he's like, my mouth is in agony. So it is really difficult. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. On the flip side, so I, I, I teach English here as well. And there's sounds in the English language that they don't have in Vietnam. So, for example, the biggest example is the TH sound, like the, um, which just doesn't exist. So trying to teach that to, to children. Um, and again, like you're talking about, you have to get the tongue. It's like put your tongue, like, like you know, things like this. So it, it goes both ways as well. I understand. And it, it's the same thing. Like they don't have that muscle memory of, it's funny, like with little kids, you can, they're easier to learn because they don't have that. But with, especially for adults, when you teach them and you're like, no, put your tongue here and do this. They've never done it before. So it's so, so difficult. Right, exactly. Yeah. So when did your parents leave Vietnam? They left around 1978. And is that something we can talk about in more detail? Sure, as much as I know. <laughs> I just want to go back quickly because we're going to move on from talking in Vietnamese. One of the jokes that I tell on stage uh, often, and that I learned this from my Vietnamese colleague, one of the reasons is like you say, the tones. So you take the word Nam, N-A-M, and you can change the inflection and that three-letter word can make seven different meanings. And so I will often get someone up on stage who can speak Vietnamese, who either is an expat or a, or a Vietnamese local and say this sentence. So I'm going to get you to say this sentence, okay? I've had previous guests do this. Sure. Um, I've, my last guest that did it was a French-Russian girl who speaks fluent Vietnamese. The one before that was Nigerian who speaks fluent Vietnamese. So let's see if uh, we're going to test your Vietnamese, okay? Okay, sure. 
Okay, the sentence is nonsensical. This is the sentence in English. I lay with a man called Nam holding five mushrooms for five years. Tôi nằm với cái âm Nam cầm năm cái nấm cho năm năm. As a non-Vietnamese speaker, I don't. It's so difficult to hear the seven different tones of Nam there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that was a good one. I've never done that one. Can you give me it one more time, but faster? I lay in bed with a man called Nam, holding five mushrooms for five years. Tôi nằm, tôi nằm trong cái giường với cái Nam nấm. Nam cái nam, mẹ nấm, nam cái nấm cho nam nam. That was like a tongue twister. I love watching your face doing this as well because you're like thinking about the tone on each one. I can watch you go like, is it up? Is it down? Is it flat? Yeah, it's like tôi nằm với cái nam cho nam nam nấm, nam cái nấm cho nam nam. So tell me then about your parents left Vietnam. Um, when did they leave Vietnam and what brought them to America? Yeah, so my parents, you know, it was like shortly after the war ended and, you know, it was a really difficult time. Both my parents um, and, and their families and my parents' families were just struggling. Like no one had any work people didn't have enough to eat they were eating like rice and mixing potatoes with their rice to try to extend it it was just a difficult time and i guess for my parents generation there was like all this talk about freedom and like you know opportunity in america and just like getting out of this country and so and you know my parents are from the north slash south slash central south so they didn't know each other at that time right but their journeys are really similar where they both decided that they each would leave the country um, or escape from the country. And they, it, they, it both took them several attempts before they were actually successful. But long story short, they were successful. They got on a boat. They were at sea for a few months. And then they actually coincidentally both ended up in a refugee camp in Hong Kong where they stayed for a few years, so 1.5 to 2 years each. And then they still didn't meet each other at the time. And then eventually they were both sponsored um, to come to Boston, Massachusetts, and that's where they settled and met each other. Awesome. It's a topic that's come up quite a lot recently on the on the podcast, and we've talked about uh, obviously a lot of people share similar experiences to your parents and, and to yourself. As I said, we've interviewed over the last couple of seasons um, Swiss, uh, Swiss Vietnamese, German Vietnamese, all with similar backgrounds. And I, I, one thing I've mentioned, I don't know, have you listened to the Vietnamese Boat People podcast? Yeah, yes, I have. So I, I keep mentioning that because I want people to go and listen to it. I've not, it's a lot of episodes now, but I have listened to quite a few of the ones in the beginning and I've read some books on it as well. And it's just something that's so harrowing and so shocking to read about. And um, meeting people like yourself always is heartening to see because you can see what the positive um, outcomes can be for people, for your family and like yourself. And then it obviously really brings it home when you read about refugees today. And it, it hurts me when you think about how terrible refugees are treated 
um, worldwide, you know, in my country and in America, or not maybe treated, but ignored or not let in. And you're just like, you know, how are we not learning from the past? Like we know that these horrible things happened before and we know the amazing things that can happen from letting refugees in. Um, I don't understand why we still can't um, be accepting of people that are fleeing basically <laughs> horrible, horrible situations. And, you know, in the, in the UK, we have some horrible people like Katie Price who said some horrible, disgusting things about not letting refugees in and things like that, people fleeing war and persecution. And you're like, why would you not want to accept these people in that are that are fleeing fleeing the country? So I, I, I divert, I, I'm going on a tangent, but uh, I have reached out to Tracy Nguyen from the Vietnamese boat people. Um, I'm waiting to hear back, so I really would love to get her on the, on the show soon. So Tracy, I said this on the last episode, if you're listening, get in touch because we want to put you on. <laughs> Yeah, Tracy is great. We worked um, we worked with her recently on an April 30th social media storytelling campaign. Um, yeah, it's, you know, capturing the stories of my parents' generation and the generation of people who lived through the war in Vietnam and escaped the country and came to the U.S. or really settled in any country around the world it's such a unique and powerful experience that is so important for the whole world. Like, as you mentioned, there's so many takeaways from there. And at the same time, it's also a very difficult conversation to have. You know, many people who had lived those experiences, they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to relive it. Yet folks of like my generation, we, we want to capture it so much. We want to like learn from it and just like, know everything we can and so it's kind of like this really odd tension of wanting to preserve you know the net the legacy of our community through these lived experiences and stories and also want to respect the people who maybe just don't want to talk about it because it was so traumatic you know so it's a constant tension and battle I think for for my community um, and very grateful to people like Tracy um, at Vietnamese Folk People Podcast who are able to capture at least a good chunk of it. Yeah, it's something I've definitely learned from talking to so many people on the podcast that most parents don't talk about it, which makes complete sense. Why would you want to talk about this harrowing experience, you know? Um, but I think as well, then, like you mentioned as well, then the children, they want to know and connect with their roots and and find out, you know, what exactly happened. So yeah, I do think it's good that Tracy is making that podcast and sharing those stories. Um, it's kind of why I asked that question as well. Some people are comfortable talking about it, some not. But even here in Vietnam, you know, we've interviewed someone on the podcast, someone who's a friend of mine who uh, his father fought in the war, but he would never talk to him about it. You know, it's not something that you grow up and your dad sits you around and be like, right, I'm going to tell you a war story. He said that most of his... Um, awareness of his dad being in the war was just overhearing his dad talking about it with friends while they're drinking beer. So which, you know, makes sense, makes sense. Now, um, let's move on a little bit. I, I'm very, I've been very excited to talk to you about coffee. Uh, if anyone is watching on Zoom, I'm, I'm drinking my morning coffee. This is one of the earliest podcasts I've ever, I've ever done. So um, Sarah is, is in... You're in Brooklyn, right? Yes, correct. 
So Sarah's in Brooklyn, New York at the moment. It's Monday evening. Late, so it's the latest interview that she's ever done and the earliest one for me. So uh, we, we're, we're dealing with the time difference. So I'm starting my day with a coffee. You'll be able to see me drinking it if you're watching on, on the Zoom. Um, I'm a massive, massive coffee fan. So I've been very excited to talk to you about it. Well, the first question I want to ask you about is you went on the Drew Barrymore show. How was that? <laughs> it was so surreal, <coughs> Neil. It was crazy. Let me tell you about it. Because, you know, Drew Barrymore is an icon. She is a living legend. And not just like an icon in Hollywood, but she is, she's been a constant presence in my family in my entire life my entire life right so my parents came to Boston in like 1981 E.T. came out in 1982 we all watched E.T. as a family and then we rewatched it you know over like you know the VCR the cassette tape like over you know across the years right throughout the 80s so we've, we grew up with Drew Barrymore. And then like my mom, I mean, she loves comedy. She loves romantic comedy because it's kind of a way for her to like feel good and happy after everything she's experienced. So she loves all of Drew Barrymore's movies. She can't stop talking about 51st Dates with her and Adam Sandler. You know, That's one of my Smoke. favorite movies. That's one of my Paul's favorite movies too. <laughs> she always talks about her and Adam Sandler in that movie. Um, Charlie's Angels, you know, for me and my my parents and my sisters, who are like, we're all we're three girls, um, three women now. We really grew up with Drew Barrymore, you know, and we're not, I'm not just saying that, but like, it, it was such like a, a, a moment of escapism and joy for my parents and my family and like so many family moments that were shared over a Drew Barrymore film. And so... It was really crazy for me, and it was actually really crazy for my parents who just viewed Drew Barrymore as like this iconic American star that they grew up with in America, you know? And so to be invited to her show, and you know, the way it happened was through a total inbound, and an associate producer DM'd me on Instagram. You know, I'm I'm not paying for PR right now. So someone literally reached out over Instagram on a Wednesday, we Zoomed on a Thursday, and then I was filming on a Tuesday, right? It happened so fast, and it was really organic, and when I met Drew, she was so freaking sweet, and just, like, so down-to-earth, and a very, very thoughtful and intentional and, you know, socially aware person, you know? You could tell that she was really genuine about wanting to have me on the show, and she, like, before we started filming... This was like, you know, during, you know, what it's still happening, but it was like around March, there's a lot of like violence around, you know, APIs and against Asian elders being reported in the news constantly. Before we even started filming, she like checked in with me and was like, hey, like, do you want to talk about the violence that's happening or, you know, against the API community right now? Or do you want to just talk about your experience as an entrepreneur? She was like, we don't want to force you to talk about this and we don't want you to feel like you're only here to talk about that you talk about whatever you want to talk about and however you want to represent yourself on the show you know like and I thought that was really cool of her you know and um of course I was like I definitely want to talk about what's happening because it's very important to me and it's very important that we use the platform to amplify it but overall um that we had so much fun together and then I don't know if you saw but she actually brought me back for a second time no I haven't seen that one yet <laughs> 
<laughs> she brought me back uh, for a second time in May. So like the first time was March, you know, then like they invited me back in May and that in itself, we used to, the second segment was like a coffee and cooking segment. And that in itself says a lot about her and her team of like, it wasn't just a one-off moment. It was like, let's bring Sarah back. Let's like extend this moment. Let's like, you know, build a relationship. I really just appreciate a level allyship because I'll tell you, Neil, I've had another, you know, daytime television show um, under the name of a pop star and her team reached out to me, invited me to be in the show after the Drew Barrymore and like, oh yeah, we're doing a program to support Asian Americans to support like, you know, anti-Asian violence. And then they were like, but you have to pay $10,000 to be in the show, right? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, this is not how you go about this. It is not my responsibility as an Asian-American woman in the Asian-owned business to donate $10,000 to fight anti-Asian violence. Like, you should be donating $10,000. But the point here with the story is um, Drew Barrymore was really great experience. Um, I'm being in the show twice, you know, in, in like three months. It was wonderful and um, a really big moment for my parents. And I would say just for representation in general of my community. That is amazing. Were you uh, completely fangirling the whole time or did you keep it together? Were you like, cool? Were you like, how, were you like what do I do? How do I act? No way. I was, I could not, you cannot keep it cool around Drew Barrymore. Like I was totally fangirling. My heart was racing. I was like so nervous, you know. Um, I was freaking out. I mean, she's a fucking icon, you know. Um, even the second time I was like more nervous the second time for some reason. Um, you know, it's funny, my mom, so the second time we were filming, it was on a Wednesday and on the Sunday prior to that Wednesday, I was visiting my mom in Boston. We were grilling and we made moon titnum, right? Um, grilled barbecue, grilled pork belly. That and then my, my mom favorite. was like, <laughs> it's so good. Right. And my mom was like, can you bring this to Drew? So she packs like a serving and a Tupperware of like, Boots and she like put a put a piece of tape on it. She wrote Drew Barrymore's name on it, and she was like, and she also packed like a a bag of toothpicks in there for her crew to like have samples. She like, can you bring it to Drew? I'm like, sure. I'm like, listen, I don't know what her dietary restrictions are. I'm no promises, but I'll bring it. So on the day of filming, I brought it, and then Drew, I ran to Drew in the hallway. We were super excited to see each other. She gave me a hug. I was like, by the way, Drew, my mom brought you some moon technology and some toothpicks for the crew. No pressure. But if you want to try it, it's here. And she was so excited. And if you watch the second segment, she actually mentions my mom's, like, moon technology in the show. She's like, Sarah's mom brought us her famous pork. And I was like, ah! My mom was just, you know, can you imagine? My mom is like being recognized on the Drew Barrymore show for her cooking. It was insane. Um, that it's wild. Amazing. So the next segment needs to have your mum on the show. <laughs> totally. She you would have kill to suggest it. that. <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, made me laugh so much. So I watched the segment, and so I know the job of a TV presenter is to be excited about things. And I'm sure Drew Barrymore is naturally a very excitable person. But her excitement about Finn Coffee made me laugh so much. I was like, how can you get... But Because I know it's for TV. So we, my wife is from America and we went back there a few years ago and we took Finn Coffee with us. We took condensed milk. We took Vietnamese coffee beans. 
and we were traveling around Texas, visiting our family, and everywhere we went, every morning, I was like, right, guys, you've got to try Vietnamese coffee. It's the best coffee in the world. And like Drew Barrymore, when she had that sip, and she's like, oh, my goodness, Vietnamese coffee is rocket fuel. My friends just started a satirical website, and he just posted uh, an article this week that made me laugh so hard. It was like, Irishman finally falls asleep five years after having a Vietnamese coffee. <laughs> I'll send it to you. And But Drew Barrymore's enthusiasm and excitement, I'm sure it was genuine, but it just seemed so fake for TV because I went around America pouring people thin coffee. And every time I did it, they were like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> Well, Neil, I gotta be honest. Were you serving what coffee were you serving them? Because Drew Bermer, she was drinking my coffee. <laughs> so let's not discredit her reaction. It wasn't just the Finn coffee, it was specifically Wing Coffee Supply coffee beans, okay? No, so it was more out. it was more just the fact when you've like put it in the Finn, she's like, oh my god, wow. And I'm like, Okay, but I'm a bit cynical because I'm like, I live here in Vietnam. So for me, that's just like, like that's how I make my coffee every day. So it's not like this amazing experience. So I did think it was really cool and it was really cute that she got so excited about something that for me, even as a Westerner, I'm like, yeah, it's coffee. That's how you- Yeah, but it. Neil, but Neil, that's the, it's all like social context, right? A societal context like the fin filter is not new it's been around for like decades and like you mentioned for you and many people in vietnam it's a daily experience but for many people in the u.s they have never heard of it they've never seen it they've never experienced it and i'm not surprised that she was so amazed because the fin is an amazing brew tool like it's small it's compact um, there's no paper waste. It's super easy to use. It brews a perfect concentrated cup in five minutes. Like it's an incredible brew tool that just has not gotten a lot of love outside of Vietnam. So, and I think that just kind of speaks to this larger thing of like, just like social culture context. Like what's new to, what's not new to one person can be like brand new to another person. And I think that is the beauty of where we have more you know, diversity in consumer experiences. We're able to share things. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not new to the theme fields. I'm, I grew up with it, right? But now through my mission and through Wincock Supply, I'm sharing it with like most of Americans and most of mainstream Americans. They're like, did you invent this? This is amazing, right? Literally people are like, did you invent this tool? I'm like, I did not invent it. It's been around for generations, but it's just like, it takes a certain experience and a certain person, a certain entrepreneur, certain like, you know, lived experience to share something culturally different. And I think that is where so much beauty lies of where we can share um, different cultural experiences and really have a connection together. No, I'm just making fun of what it was. Uh, I thought it was really <laughs> cute, but I, I also was like, wow, I've never seen anyone so excited over a fiend coffee before. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in for too long, that's why. This season, we are proud to be partnered with and sponsored by Eddie's New York Deli and Diner. They are one of my favorite places to go in Saigon. You're always greeted with a big smile. You can get delivery from Eddie's. They are the delivery experts, so if you don't want to leave the house, hit them up on Facebook Messenger. They'll get back to you immediately, or you can also get them on Grab as well. As I said, I've been going to Eddie's since they've opened three years ago. It is one of my go-to places in Saigon, so please check it out. 
I, I'm 100%. Yeah, I've been here too long. That's what I'm saying. I'm a little bit like, meh, it's coffee. But I did do it. I took it all around America. We literally brought, it wasn't your beans, but it was Vietnamese coffee beans. I brought condensed milk. I brought a fiend. We were going all around Texas, the different families. And we're like, right, let me make you this coffee. Everyone loved it. But I never saw anyone get as excited as Drew Barrymore about it. Next time you do your family tour, bring some wind coffee to buy beans, okay? I will do. I will do, definitely. <laughs> so let's talk more about coffee because... um. I've been, I've been very, I don't want to put down all my other guests, but this is one of the most excited, I've been the most excited I've been to talk to someone for a podcast um, because I feel like I've, there's a lot of topics that I want to talk about and, and one of them is coffee. So as you can tell, I've already had my morning coffee, so I'm starting to get more excited now. Um, and it is one of my biggest passions. Now, as I was reading more about when coffee supply and your mission one of the things that broke my heart was reading about in, in America, I didn't know this, that it's marketed, it's like a buzzword to sell Vietnamese coffee, but it's not Vietnamese coffee. And um, so tell, explain to the listeners more about that and then how that's driven your mission to, to highlight um, Vietnamese coffee. Yeah, absolutely. You know, around 2016, um, I think Vietnamese food, and culture was really having an emergence and a big moment in mainstream America. Um, similar to how like, you know, Chinese food is really, is really popularly known. And then it was like, you know, Japanese food and Thai food and like Vietnamese food was kind of like being discovered by like, non-Vietnamese people in America. And on a similar wavelength, Neil, I noticed that when I would go into these different specialty coffee shops and these hipster cafes, they started throwing up Vietnamese iced coffee on the menu. And initially I was like, oh, this is cool. This is the moment. This is the culture moment. Vietnamese iced coffee is getting recognition on these menus, right? But then every time I would try the Vietnamese iced coffee meal, it never tasted like Vietnamese coffee. Um, because, you know, robusta coffee beans is really a big part of Vietnamese coffee culture. Yes, Arabica is growing, but, you know, historically robusta is a big part of Vietnamese coffee culture. And I would always ask the barista at these cafes, what's in your Vietnamese iced coffee? And they would say, oh, it's a house espresso or a house cool brew that's from Ethiopia or from Brazil or from Colombia or from any country, um, you know, from Africa or South America that was more in the specialty coffee scene at the time. And so I felt like this was really problematic for so many reasons. One, it's just pure false advertising and miseducation for consumers because Vietnamese coffee has a very distinct taste, right? Arabic and robusta beans are pretty much on the opposite end of the spectrum. Two, it renders the actual producers of the coffee invisible. Like the Ethiopian coffee um, farmers or the Brazilian coffee farmers, just call it Ethiopian coffee with sweetened condensed milk, right? Like let's do justice to the actual producers here. Three, what we're seeing is, you know, a, a, a group of people and businesses who want to profit off of the cultural cachet of a Vietnamese iced coffee concept, but yet the producers and the creators of this cultural product and this concept being Vietnamese people and producers and farmers, we're not benefiting at all from this transaction, right? Which is probably the biggest problem to me. And so from there, I just started kind of looking into it, looking into it more and like, why are they just using real Vietnamese coffee beans. And that's when I realized that the specialty coffee industry in America was really built around this idea and this narrative of 100% Arabica is superior. And at the same time, they built this narrative explicitly um, saying that Vietnamese coffee is cheap, 
Robusta coffee is inferior and that they don't really belong in specialty coffee culture, right? Which I found to be very problematic because these are ultimately all social constructs, right? In my research, I discovered that Vietnam is the number two producer of coffee in the world, which blew my mind because I didn't know that as a Vietnamese American. Because originally I was like, well, maybe Vietnam is not involved in specialty coffee because they don't make coffee. Like maybe there's just no source there, right? But no, Vietnam is the number two producer of coffee in the world. And the fact that I didn't know that, Neil, for me, screams lack of transparency, lack of visibility, and lack of representation. When we have non-transparent supply chains in any food industry, be it seafood or coffee, most often than not, it means that there's an exploitative labor cycle at the end of that, right? Because when people don't have visibility or representation, they can't properly advocate for themselves, right? So for me, as a Vietnamese American, I felt like there was a huge injustice happening to Vietnamese people and producers, um, because they have contributed largely to coffee experiences around the world. They touch lives around the world. And there's a huge missed opportunity, not just for coffee farming, but also for culture connection of like, oh, my coffee is made by a Vietnamese person. Like, that's pretty cool, right? So with that in mind, I, I really want to change all of this, right? Because specialty coffee as it exists today, Neil, is not just something that we drink. Specialty coffee didn't just grow out of the ground on its own. Specialty coffee is a collective investment from people all along the supply chain to build a more sustainable and equitable world, right? It requires producers and buyers working with farmers and saying, hey, did you know that if you use these organic practices and these all-natural biofertilizers and you handpick just the ripe cherries instead of grabbing all the ripe and unripe cherries, you get a better product. If you get a better harvest, you can sell it for a higher price. And then the buyer sells it to the roaster and says, this is a single origin XYZ. It's 90% hand-picked red cherries. It's XYZ process. The roasters buy it for a better price, right? The roasters sell it to the baristas and the baristas are educating consumers. Hey, this cup of coffee is a single origin XYZ. It's $6 instead of $3, right? It is really a collective investment from people all along the supply chain. And but when it came to Vietnam deal, people were not willing to apply those values or that investment to Vietnam. They would just write on Vietnam and say, Vietnam doesn't count. Vietnam is instant coffee. Vietnam is cheap. Vietnam is robusta, which I really felt like was wrong and fucked up and it needed to change. So that's where I stepped in and I said, well, I want to change this because Vietnam, if Vietnam is the number two producer of coffee in the world, that means the product is already there. We have a huge opportunity to improve the lives of farmers all across the country and improve agriculture sustainability simply by making the product that's already there better, right? We can change so many lives and change the landscape by just making what's there better. And it just requires someone to come in and just look at it a different way. And so that's where, when Coffee Supply was born, um, and that's what we're trying to do. I love your enthusiasm and passion. It's awesome. I can see you getting more excited as we're talking about it, which is cool. Um, I think, again, as someone who lives here and, and loves the coffee, you know, even just recently when we went up to Dong Nai and Dalat and you drive through and for people who don't live here or haven't been here, like there's literally just coffee beans everywhere, like by the side of the road, 
just sitting there drying. It's like there's so much coffee beans. They're not like locked up or anything like that. They just sit there by the side of the road, right? It's crazy. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I wondered if this was a challenge for you, is uh, convincing people of the quality and the safety of the beans. Because for us, when we first came to Vietnam five years ago, the first thing that people told us when we would get a coffee from like the street coffee would be, oh, better be careful because there's a lot of fake coffee out there. And and you can do Google, you can Google it and find it. I mean, even I don't know if you you were aware of this story. It was about two, maybe three years ago. They found out that someone was selling coffee here in Vietnam. I think for the local market, not export, and it was using uh, reused batteries within the coffee. Um, and when we first came here five years ago, there was somebody did a test of like coffee sold on the street, and a huge percentage, and I can't remember off the top of my head, but a large number was fake coffee. Was They were doing roasted soybeans, which is actually carcinogenic and, and unsafe. And so from that perspective, is that then difficult to then explain? If any, I don't know if anyone in America would be aware of that, but if they're so uh, convinced of Ar- Arabica and things like that, to then be like, hey, do you want to try these Vietnamese Robusta coffee beans? Is anyone like, oh, I'm not sure about that? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, because those those are... Everything that you describe, Neil, those are truths, right? And those are realities, right? And that is part of the reality that we live in with this coffee industry. Um, and so I'm not dismissing that those things exist. Um, I'm just saying that it can change, right? With with the willingness from people all along the supply chain. Um, but to your question of like, was it hard to convince people? To be honest, it wasn't really because um, I think a lot of those ideas weren't really existing in American consumers' minds. I think it existed a lot in industry folks, right? The people who may work in the coffee industry, but the people who I were interacting with directly, like they drink the coffee, taste the coffee, they like it or they don't like it, right? But because of these things, Neil, and my desire to reframe the narrative and show that Vietnamese coffee can produce specialty coffee if we work together, that is why I decided to import green beans and roast in Brooklyn, New York, right? Because I wanted to align myself with how the specialty coffee industry in the United States was producing products, right? So, because I had an opportunity to, you know, fully roast and package in Vietnam, right? Uh, and the costs are different there. But me, myself, personally, I wanted to be able to offer, you know, craft roasted, small batch roasted, uh, roasted on the ProBat manually, roasted on the Loring, uh, roasted locally, roasted weekly, Right. Because it would communicate specialty, it would communicate quality. And also for me, myself, as, you know, as an entrepreneur and, you know, as a founder of the company, I want to make sure that I could touch the product and, you know, attest to the quality of the product by literally seeing the green beans before we roasted it, right? Um, so that is how we, in terms of how we are developing our product in the supply chain, meaning importing greens and roasting in Brooklyn, that is how we are, you know, um, assuring the quality of our beans. Um, and otherwise, you know, this pattern of like cheap coffee products that are in the market, that is going to exist for as long as we allow it to, right? And until people say, hey, we want a more sustainable Vietnamese coffee product, it's not gonna put any pressure on corporations or conglomerates or producers and farmers to change their ways, right? And for example, I don't know if you saw recently, but 
you know, Kirin, this big company in Japan, it was just announced that Kirin is now investing in sustainable coffee farming in Vietnam because they're receiving pressure from their consumers for more sustainable coffee products. And the more we can change the perceptions of Americans here from just dismissing Vietnam as like, they're cheap, they're instant. If we keep perpetuating that narrative, then that's all Vietnamese producers can participate in, right? That's the, they will, that will be the only... Um, the they were only that would be the only opportunity they have to produce and sell their product into that market. But we can change our perception of being like, sure, Vietnamese coffee has entered cheap and instant markets, but you know what? We want sustainable, single origin, organic Vietnamese coffee products. Where can we get that? Where can we see that? Right? All of a sudden, we have massive green bean buyers talking to Vietnamese producers. We have Vietnamese producers and growers learning about how to produce specialty, pro specialty coffee. We have Vietnamese farmers producers learning about 80 points, 90 points, 95 points, about hand picking, about, you know, all these things, right? So it's all a collective investment. Um, but that was a long way of saying like, Yes, no, not really. And it takes effort and willingness from everyone to change an old system. That's really exciting. I, I'd love it if I go back to America when post-pandemic, when travel is allowed and, and suddenly you can see uh, good Vietnamese coffee everywhere. That would be super exciting and, and be like a new, a new thing, but not like a, a fake thing, like a buzzword, like Vietnamese coffee. Like I said to my friend about... Uh, the, the problem of just adding condensed milk. And he said, the first thing he said is like, but in Spain, they add condensed milk to coffee. It's not Vietnamese just by adding condensed milk. One of the... Exactly. I, I want to I wanna add that because that's actually a narrative that we try to challenge as well here, that Vietnamese coffee is not synonymous with... Vietnamese coffee is not synonymous with sweet condensed milk because there are many cultures around the world that also use sweet condensed milk, like Spain in the Cafe Bonbon, right? In Thailand, they also have sweet condensed milk. So it's not right to just reduce Vietnamese coffee to sweet condensed milk because we don't reduce Ethiopian coffee or Brazilian coffee or Colombian coffee to anything. Vietnamese coffee should be allowed to be coffee beans, and they should be allowed to exist in all their versatility, whether it's through the bean filter or the Chemex or the pour over or espresso with oat milk, with almond milk, with cream and sugar, or sweet condensed milk, right? So our, you know, our work, part of our work is also expanding this narrative of what is Vietnamese coffee and what can it be, right? Um, and I want to add something to Neil, add something to, um, to what you said earlier, Neil, about if you came to Vietnam, I mean, if you came to the United States and seeing quality Vietnamese coffee, I want to share with you some really cool facts about some things that we've been tracking here on our side about the rise of Vietnamese coffee in the United States. Um, for starters, we've received, you know, um, over 500 plus inbounds to serve our coffee um, at different businesses around the country. So over 500 plus inbounds since 2019, that speaks to the interest and the awareness and the demand for Vietnamese coffee. I received, um, I can't remember this number, but, you know, countless inbounds about selling Vietnamese green beans, right? Like from roasters and other cafes, like, do you sell your green beans? Because people now want to roast Vietnamese coffee, but they don't quite have the access yet because it's being developed, right? Um, Vietnamese cafe openings around the country from what we've been tracking, Neil, um, is growing um, up to 1,100% year over year. Um, and that's from the cafes that we tracked alone. But also, I don't know if you saw this, but King Coffee, which is a Vietnamese um, franchise, 
recently opened their very first cafe in Anaheim, California. They have announced 20 new stores for 2021, and they've announced 100 new stores by franchise by 2022. So there is a wave of Vietnamese cafes and Vietnamese coffee culture happening in the United States, and it's happening right now, right? Um, and with all of this awareness and this appreciation for not just the coffee or the swing that's built, but also for the culture, that's going to dramatically impact the industry abroad as well. Wow, that's crazy. Well, I, I'm hoping then I will see the difference when I come back. But now you know what's going to happen when I have a Vietnamese coffee, when I go back to the States, I'm going to be like, right, is this really a Vietnamese coffee? I'm going to be asking them, like, what beans is this? Is this Vietnamese or is it Ethiopian? Now, to bring it back to Vietnam, something that um, I don't know how much you are aware of this, um, and I am, my, I, I am a coffee snob, not in the way that, like, I want Chemex or pour over or whatnot. I just, I know what I like and I want what I like, okay? And I like my Vietnamese coffee and I do like Arabica as well and I like a cappuccino, but I like them, you know, in their own right. One of the things that's become really common in Saigon over the last five years, when I first got here five years, non-existent, now it's really common. They're doing what you're describing, but they're doing it here in Saigon. So espresso machines have proliferated roadside espresso machines. Like literally, I don't know how much they cost, but you buy an espresso machine, you put it on the side of the road and you start selling coffee. But they will sell you a Vietnamese coffee. So I'll go and ask for a Cafe Suada, Itsua. And then this happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. Then I hear the, the coffee machine go. And I went straight up to the counter and I was like, oh, in my broken Vietnamese, I was like, is this the Cafe Suada? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. I just give me an, just make that an espresso then. I don't, I will not buy. I, it, one of my biggest pet peeves is if they try and serve you an espresso, uh, sorry, a Cafe Suada made from an espresso machine. I'm like, no, a Cafe Suada is made in a fin. That's an espresso. I have to correct you, Neil. Cafe Suada is coffee. With milk and ice. No, so I know that. It could be espresso coffee with milk and ice. What you really want is cafe fin. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know the translation, but I mean, like, <laughs> for me, if I'm asking for a cafe suada, it's a Vietnamese fin coffee with condensed milk and ice. I know what you mean, though. I, I totally get it because when I was in the last time I was in Vietnam in 2019, um, I was also experiencing the growth of espresso machines. And so many places I would go to, I'd be like, Cafe Sera, and they would pull an espresso shot at a little sweet condensed milk and ice. And I was kind of like, you know, and, and as you know, as like a, a Vietnamese American is missing, I'm like, I don't want the fiend experience, you know, but that was too fast for me, right? So I definitely had my own moments. Where I was like, Wait, where's the feed? You're evolving. No. Um, but I get it, you know, like it's so much more economical and fast for them to produce that. That that's what it is, right? It's faster, so like you can make it in an espresso instantly, but the fin takes like a few minutes. But that's what I I'll wait. This is Vietnam. We can be a bit slower. We can I want to enjoy my coffee. So um, for me, yeah, that's a massive pet peeve. If I hear that machine going, I am up and I'm like, and I know what coffee shops, because see, I think they should market it as espresso suada, not cafe suada. I think it should be two product. And then you know if it's espresso suada, it's an espresso with condensed milk versus cafe suada. This is fascinating because this is kind of like 
the intersections of culture, right? And it's like, because, you know, Vietnam is very, especially Saigon is a very transient city right now. So we're having like this really interesting moment in time where there's so much like collision and intersection of culture. So I agree. We need some standardized language of like, cafe sera fa tu espresso or cafe sera fa tu fin. Like, you need to say like cafe sera and in the brew afterwards. So people like are on the same page. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you see why I didn't start our podcast talking about coffee, because I knew if I did that, then we wouldn't talk about anything else. That was definitely on purpose, because I wanted to ask you more questions than just about coffee. So we'll move on, because we could talk all day about this. And I can see you're getting more excited and more passionate as we're talking. And and I've run out of my coffee, so I'm going to need to go and make another one soon. Um, we, we finish the podcast with the same questions every episode, right? And right now the questions, um, the first question, I'm interested to hear your answer because you obviously live in New York, not Saigon. And this question is inspired by Saigon that um, as the wealth has increased here, the amount of uh, luxurious cars has increased exponentially as well. So it's normal to walk down the street and see a Bentley or a Mercedes or a Lamborghini or a Porsche. But at the same time, um, the, the paintwork doesn't match the class of the car. And so we see some, uh, look, I'll just be honest, some horrendous cars. And uh, the best example that I give to people is recently there was a bedazzled Mercedes where the whole Mercedes was decked out in silver glitter. Um, being in New York, do you have a similar, or even when you've been to Vietnam, what's the craziest car that you've seen? You know, I feel like Saigon has more extravagant, car- extravagant cars than New York City because I was thinking about this question earlier and I was like, the cars here are boring as fuck. Like, the only thing I could think about would be like graffiti trucks, you know? Um, but really, actually, because New York has like really um, bad um, potholes, the streets here are really, really like poorly, you know, constructed and like not taking care of their potholes everywhere. You know, there are like bumps everywhere. So I feel like there aren't really nice cars. At least I haven't seen any. Also, New York City is a very um, train centric city, right? So I, I feel like there, I have not seen any nice cars here. Um, I myself drive a Toyota Camry, like super basic, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I cannot recall an interesting, a nice car here recently. I thought that might be a, a bit of a more difficult question for you. This one might be easier. Have you tried durian? I actually haven't tried durian. My mom loves it so much and it's, I've always been around it, but I've actually never tried it. Isn't that what? horrible? <laughs> you are the first guest that's answered no to that question. <laughs> I have no idea why. Yeah, I have not. What's your mom's name? Ni. Ni, N-H-I? N-I. N-I. Ni, make sure that Sarah tries some durian soon, okay? Because we're going to come back and find out whether you like it or not. And you know what? I should try it. Next time my mom's eating it, I will try it. As I'm sure it's available and you can get it in some specialty supermarkets yeah. and things like that. Seasonally, we can get here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so moving on. So... What's something that happens in America that would look strange in Vietnam? I think when people have hamster pets here. Wait, what? People who keep hamsters as pets here. Oh, I thought you meant like took them out for walks. 
Oh, no, no. Look, I think just keeping hamsters as pets in America, I think that's odd. I think that'd be odd in Vietnam because they look like rats, really. Like, I know in a social context in America, like, hamsters are cute, but really, they're kind of like rats, you know? And so I, I think in Vietnam, that would seem weird because the concept of having dogs and cats as pets is kind of more of like a recent thing. I feel so. Hamsters. That was the yeah. most unexpected answer that I would have expected. And hamster. Yeah, I mean, do they do, do people in Vietnam not keep like rodents in cages? Because that is quite normal, even from Scotland. Like my first pet was a hamster. People have guinea pigs. People don't have that in Vietnam. No, they they're not keeping rodents in cages as pets in Vietnam. They barely just started keeping dogs and cats as pets. Which, yeah, that's very true as well. Yeah, that's like having a household pet is is quite a new thing, right? So conversely, what's something that happens in Vietnam that would be looked at strangely in America? I feel like, I don't know if it's something that happens. It's more of like, the first thing that came to mind were like the toilets and the ground, like where you have to stand, where it's like literally on the, there's a hole in the ground, you just squat on top. Instead of like um, a toilet, I've been I've been to so many parts of it now where like that's just a situation. Um, so I think that's something if you've never experienced a non-toilet situation, but really just literally a hole in the ground, you got to kind of like squat into like that's kind of like probably something new to get used to. Yeah, I mean when I first came to Southeast Asia in general, that was one of my biggest fears and was worries and even. Now, if you travel outside of Saigon or depending where you go, before you open the door of a bathroom, there's that intrepidation of like, what kind of toilet is it going to be? More often than not, in Vietnam, it is a porcelain toilet bowl. But um, when you travel, you know, like I was in Myanmar a couple of years ago and I got really sick, really, really sick. And the only toilet they had was a squat toilet. And that has to be one of the lowest points of my life when you are very, very ill, and the only amenities is a squat toilet. I'll maybe cut this bit out, because that's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> I don't want to add to the squat toilet. It's also like you have to, like, grab water with a bucket and then, like, pour it into the hole in order to flush it. There's no flush handle. You have to, like, literally scoop water from a hole and pour it into the squat, squat toilet. Um, but I do want to say, though, like, physically speaking, it is healthier to be in a squatting position when you're doing your business than sitting. Oh, I've seen this infographic, yeah, because <laughs> this is disgusting because <laughs> your bowels are, like, more aligned, yes, right? Exactly, exactly. So, you know... But, something. but you got to be good at the Asian squat to be able to do that, which is just one of the most amazing things in the world that uh, that in Vietnam and in Asia, they, they can just squat for an indefinite amount of time in any situation, mostly for no reason, like just on the side of the street or just chilling out, like just in the Asian squat. Yeah, it requires a level of flexibility that must be built up. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something you need to ha- have done from from a young age, right? And you watch people who are like older who do it, and it's like that's incredible that you can still do that. Mm-hmm. So thank you so so much. This has been awesome. I've had so much fun. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I've been fan gilding over you, uh, like you were with Drew Barrymore. Um, tell us, tell all of our listeners more about where they can follow you, find you. 
I'm really sorry. We've kind of run out of time. We didn't even get a chance to talk about your activism, which I really did want to talk about as well. So give a quick shout out to about the work you're doing is in terms of the Stop Asian Hate and working with the Asian and Pacific Islander communities as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think in general, like in America, if people aren't aware, there's just been a huge rise and surge in anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian racism um, where a lot of our Asian American elders, like, you know, grandparents, elderly folks are just being straight up attacked in the streets. And a lot of it is stemmed from the scapegoating of COVID-19 against Asian folks. Um, it, it stems directly from our previous president's, um, you know, language scapegoating Asian people for COVID-19. So it's, it's been a very difficult time, you know, in the U.S. right now. For Asian Americans, a lot of us don't feel safe. A lot of us don't feel like our parents are safe when we step out because these attacks are happening at any moment and in major cities everywhere. So for me, you know, in addition to a lot of the fundraisers and the community actions we've done, I, I really think at the end of the day, just like when coffee supply is the work, you know, like building when coffee supply, building a new system in an ecosystem rooted in transparency, visibility, representation, and, equi and equity um, is part of the work of building just a better world here, right? So, you know, if people want to follow us and follow our journey, you know, you can, we put all of our most exciting news on Instagram, first and foremost. So it's at Win Coffee Supply, um, where that's on Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. Uh, we also have a website. We're not currently shipping to Vietnam, but if you're anywhere else in the world, um, try us out. We ship nationwide into a few international countries. It's wincoffeesupply.com. Um or, you know, if you're not able to purchase from us, I highly would recommend joining our email list. I send out an, a monthly newsletter and a monthly letter from me directly about our journey. And me personally, you can find me on Instagram at one ounce gold, O-N-E-O-U-N-C-E-G-O-L-D. Awesome. I, I thought about that question about like, can you buy your coffee here in Vietnam? But it seems kind of reductive that if you were to export coffee beans to Brooklyn, roast them, and then send them back to Vietnam. I feel like that would make it extremely expensive. It would, but Neil, you know, I've had people in Vietnam who have asked me to ship them coffee. Oh, and wow. it's really fascinating. And I'm like, you know, you have this, right? It's Vietnamese coffee. Um, but it speaks to the power of um, brand and cultural cachet. I think a lot of them are really fascinated about our Made in Brooklyn story, you know, us being on Drew Barrymore, you know. It just speaks to this larger power of culture exchange. Well, post-pandemic, when we can get back to the States, I will be definitely seeking out Win Coffee Supply if I come to back to New York, which I, I used to live there, so I love it. I've not been back to New York for a long time, over 10 years. So I'm excited to go back. I'm sure it's not, I'm sure it's a completely different city to the one that I lived in from uh, all accounts that I've heard, but I'm excited to get back one day and, uh, and I'll try your coffee as well. So listen, thank you so, so much. This has been so much fun. Um, it's been great to talk and I hopefully we'll talk again soon and I will see you when you come back to Vietnam. Yes, I look forward to it, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. No worries, cheers. Okay. 
Thanks very much for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. Don't forget to subscribe from wherever you're listening from right now. Turn on the notifications as well so you never miss an episode. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you go back through. We've got five seasons of amazing guests that you can listen to their stories as well. Please get in touch. I always love to hear from our listeners. It's one of the best things when I wake up in the morning and I open up Instagram or Facebook and I've had a message from someone telling me that they've been listening from America or Australia or anywhere in the world. So please let me know where you're listening from or Vietnam as well, obviously. Um, I always love to hear from people. I want to give a massive thank you again to our Patreon members, Brandon Thompson and Zion Johnson. If you do enjoy this content, you can support 7 Million Bikes of Vietnam podcast on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. You can become a member of a Vietnam podcast and get access to exclusive member benefits like free tickets to comedy shows or even a free 7 Million Bikes t-shirt as well. So check that out in the show notes, as I said. And you can also buy me a coffee or a beer if you want on coffee.com. So make sure you check that out. So thanks again for listening. Really hope you enjoy season six and you can stay tuned for the future episodes. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.